You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Culturally Determined, and I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Michael Tracy. Michael, could you introduce yourself? Hello there, Blogging Heads universe. I am... Michael Tracy, journalist, um, was up until a week or two ago officially a, a journalist with uh, the Young Turks Network and um, am now in the process of coming up with another journalistic route that I will pursue and um, the details of which are a little premature to divulge publicly, but there uh, there will be th- there are things in the works. So Oh, I didn't realize you weren't with um, the Young Turks anymore. Um, okay, well, we'll stay tuned um, to see where uh, where you land. Um, so thanks for coming on today. You've been on uh, Blogging Heads a couple times before. Probably most people are familiar with you. Um, I'd say that you're, the perspective you embody is kind of um, leftish, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of skepticism of a lot of the liberal narrative regarding what's happening in the country, especially the Trump administration and uh, the Russia story. Uh, would you say that's accurate? Um, I wouldn't object to that characterization necessarily. I think that's a roughly accurate. You know, since the beginning of Trump's candidacy, actually, I think one of the main features of how it's been perceived is basically a contradictory liberal portrayal of Trump. Um, and one of the big manifestations of that obviously is the Russia story because it's so dominant, but it also extends into other areas. So, you know, and those contradictions have been apparent to me over time um, to the point that I normally feel impelled to, to point them out, which can tend to make people angry. But um, anyway, yeah. So I think the characterization is, is roughly accurate. So what would you say are those contradictions in the liberal narrative? Well, I mean, thinking back now going to, to the campaign, There was this narrative that Trump was a fascist menace, unlike anything ever before seen in American politics, and therefore all the stops had to be pulled out to prevent him from seizing power, or so you would think, because what liberals tend to do is they've amped up the rhetorical flourishes to describe Trump, and yet their actual conduct doesn't seem to accord with those rhetorical flourishes. So think back – you know, to the spring of 2016, for example, there was this talk that Trump was a legitimate threat to the world order. And I guess sort of now that 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 line has continued. But there, if you really believe that Trump was so dangerous that he could obliterate all of humankind, then it was in, probably incumbent on you to take steps beyond angrily tweeting and maybe organizing in swing states for the Democratic presidential candidate. You had to do some things that actually, I don't know, could incur some physical risk. That's what the resistance did in, say, occupied France or the resistance did in other places that were under fascist tyranny. Mm-hmm. And yet there, there always seemed to be a distance between how liberals were describing Trump in terms of their rhetoric and what they were willing to do in practice. And to me, that called into question whether or not they actually believe their rhetoric. And there's something similar going on now. I mean, you have the dominant narrative being that Trump has committed literal treason 
which is probably the most extreme allegation that you can level at any president. I mean, if not the most, it's one of the most extreme. I mean, it would be un- would have been unfathomable not too long ago. And yet you don't see Democrats and their kind of you know, liberal abettors in the media behaving as though that set of extreme circumstances is actually upon us. It's what they seem to be doing is evidenced almost entirely by the manner in which they've scaled up the tone of their rhetoric um, rather than, you know, any any kind of tangible action which would seem to substantiate the, the fears that they've been expounding. So um, that, 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 to me, I think is the, the, my guiding premise in analyzing a lot of what Trump does, separate the rhetoric of both Trump himself and his supporters – from action and also Trump's opponents and, and, and their action. And you, you can thereby see many contradictions that tend to get buried under the hyperbole and the, the, the rhetoric, which I think is at a level now that's sort of unprecedented in terms of its extremism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'd respond by saying uh, the re- there's rhetoric uh, that is – very, very extreme coming from both, um, kind of mainstream type figures. Uh, John Brennan, I think, is the one who tweeted that uh, after uh, Trump's press conference with Putin that this is, he's a traitor, this is treason. And then you have kind of the, just like the social media exaggeration that people do because it helps them get lots of attention and retweets of the kind of like the Krasenstein brothers or whatever you pronounce their last name where it's just like always, you know, everything is always at like hyped up to 11 and the thread is always like, you know, uh, we're at one minute from midnight. So I, I acknowledge I love that. The, I love those guys, by the way. Yeah. Did you see the article about them and how kind of they, they have kind of a semi shady past and all of like Florida real estate and, uh, yeah, I mean, more power to them though. I mean, if you can, if you can convert your, slightly dubious liaison with, with law enforcement into a bizarrely massive social media presence. And I have to just respect the hustle. Yeah, they're talented. And I, I mean, there's been an emergence of some of the kind of hucksters on the left that have long been on the right. Um, the Crassin scenes, Louise Mensch, um, uh, Eric Garland, that guy who I think is mentally ill. Um, but it hasn't, there's no like, there's not like a Dinesh D'Souza type figure exactly, or like the big kind of prominent people who are clearly like doing huckster type things to like make money. Um, yeah. If, if Eric, if like Eric Garland and Louise Mensch were to collaborate on a documentary film, which were playing in theaters nationwide and then were invited on, you know, to MSNBC every couple of days. And then, you know, wrote like six best-selling books in a row, then they would rise to Dinesh D'Souza levels. And I guess they'd have to get, like, involved in some kind of criminal activity and then be pardoned. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's still, like, ten times as many, like, talented con men and hucksters on, on the right as there are on the left right now. Um, I don't think Trump is a fascist um, because I don't think he truly has an ideology. And, um, you know, you have to believe in some things to be a fascist. Uh, when it comes to, like, what the resistance is doing versus what their rhetoric would imply they should be doing, I mean, what would you want them to be doing? Like, like political violence is not going to solve anything. It would only lead to a backlash that would support the um, people in power. 
uh, you know, you could, we have students doing, uh, you know, like die-in events at their congressman's offices. So they're putting their bodies down on the ground to protest. We've had massive rallies. We've had people who have never uh, been involved in politics before getting, uh, you know, deciding to run for their state uh, legislature or for Congress. Uh, there's people like uh, Astasio Cortez, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who have, you know, come out um, to uh, put themselves forward for office. So there's been like, a, you know, people are sticking within democratic lines. Like democracy has not been eliminated like it was in Vichy, France. Uh, we don't, you know, the resistance maybe has, you know, it's high blown rhetoric, but it, no one is like living underground or smuggling weapons. Um, but people are still working within, within the democratic means because the, he, Trump is not a, a fascist authoritarian. He has not canceled elections. Um, he has not like ignored a Supreme court order or anything like that. He has not provoked an actual constitutional crisis yet. Uh, it may still be in the, in the offing, but, but we don't, we don't know yet. So that's, that would be my kind of defense of, of the resistance. Well, I mean, I think the high-blown rhetoric can be attributed in part to the social media excesses, which is just an ingrained feature of how those online networks operate, and there's nothing you can do to change it, and you have to kind of accept that as Mm -hmm. what those networks are kind of designed to encourage and what they reward. Um, But at the same time, I I think at this point, you can't fully separate social media from – Ordinary politics. Every single politician is involved in social media to some extent at this point. Uh, the president uses social media as his main, uh, you know, uh, bullhorn. Right. So, I think the kind of tropes that originate in social media pretty reliably end up trickling into just kind of mainstream political discussion, if if only because. Every you know cable news producer basically spends all day sitting on Twitter and, and, and booking their shows based on like what the trending topics are. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of inseparable at this phenomenon at this point. And the social media originated portrayal of Trump has almost morphed into what the mainstream Democratic view of, of Trump is uh, in terms of the rhetoric that they employ. So that's an issue because – it tends to inform their analysis of the current political circumstances in a way that I think is very often flawed. So you said before that you don't think Trump is a fascist. That would put you apart from lots of the leading opinion makers in the United States who use that presumption as the kind of guiding theory of how they are describing present political conditions. Mm-hmm. So that's a big distinction. I mean, if you think he's a fascist versus if you don't, it's not just kind of like some trivial consideration. It's actually a fundamental departure in in how you view the current you know, political landscape. So considering that, you know, based on their rhetoric, lots of people in the, in the Democrat, Democratic Party and then in the media and in the various elite classes do feel as though he's a fascist, you're, you're leading – you're bringing about a incomplete and often inaccurate assessment of president political dynamics. One of the big manifestations of that is this belief that what we're undergoing now is not normal. So that's the mantra. That's the chant 
that's been what you have been supposed to line up and you know proclaim since the election. This is not normal. You're supposed to like drone it as if you're in church reciting hymns or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of what people ascribe to abnormality actually tends to be quite normal. And they don't want to believe that it's normal because that detracts from the overriding thesis that Trump constitutes an aberrational imposition on the American people, probably with the help of a uh, of a hostile foreign power. So they want to delegitimize the what Trump represents as a duly elected uh, president because they don't want to believe that he's duly elected because that would mean that they have to kind of reorient their political perspectives to account for that reality. He actually, you know, just as a side note, you see something very similar happening now with Brexit. A lot of the, the, the so Britain always kind of follows America's lead um, in the most sinister possible ways. So they don't actually import a lot of what's good about America, but they like mimic what's bad. So now you have like a lacking indicator in Britain where the <clears throat> kind of prevailing view in liberal media circles um, and among you know, large factions of the anti-Brexit contingency is that, you know, Brexit was basically fostered by a cabal of Russian subversives who, are, you know, had this kind of unseemly alliance with billionaires and, uh, you know, right wing uh, populists to kind of upend the uh, international order in a way that that, that that Trump is also operating. So if you're if you desire to portray Trump as an illegitimate phenomenon, then you're going to latch onto all these kind of extraneous explanations for what he represents. And um, I think that is a danger because it leads you to, again, depict present political circumstances as though there's nothing precedented about them when, in fact, a lot of the worst things that, in my opinion, Trump has done are actually continuations of the status quo, also, albeit with a Trumpian flair and done in a way that is kind of most identified with his ridiculous rhetoric and his ridiculous mannerisms, and that's what people latch on to, but is actually a longstanding feature of the American state. I can give a couple examples, one of which is bombing Syria. I mean, he's done that twice now. And to me, you know, bombing a foreign country without uh, sufficient pretext is one of the worst things that an American president can do. And yet, That's as American as apple pie, I would say. It's an American as an apple pie, and it's actually the one, on the, one of the very few occasions where the media was virtually united in praising Trump. Um, so they don't care when he, you know, illegally bombs countries, um, but they do care when he cracks a rude joke or when he, you know, makes a ambiguous facial expression at Putin. Um, so, and there are other examples as well. I mean, so Trump is appointing, <laughs> appointing Supreme Court justices who are basically just creatures of the conservative legal establishment and who Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or any other of these guys would have very easily nominated. Um, in fact, you can make a strong argument that Trump nominating these guys is basically a capitulation to the conservative establishment that he upended and had a mandate to actually rebuke. But because he apparently doesn't care about the the, who, the the ideological character of Supreme Court justices, meaning means he's just willing to outsource that to you know an institution which again is very much precedented in American society. So the basic takeaway is that 
the worst aspects of Trump's presidency, by my lights, are those in which he's basically carrying forth the establishmentarian <clears throat> status quo. And yet those are the aspects of his presidency which don't seem to upset the, quote, resistance quite as much as I would say the more trivial facets of what he's done, such as going to Brussels last week, doing some deal-making theatrics, you know, saying to Angela Merkel, you're enthralled to Germany, you know, this to Russia. This was all supposedly a harbinger of the collapse of the international order. Well, lo and behold, the international order is still as it was prior to, you know, a week and a half ago. I mean, I don't think that should be a surprise. And Trump actually ended up entrenching NATO by getting, by actually at least claiming or getting NATO member states to reaffirm their commitment to NATO and to reaffirm their commitment to allocating more of their GDP toward defense spending. So Trump didn't cause the international Western security order to implode. That's what a lot of the most prominent analysts in American media claimed was happening. But what actually happened was that Trump proved that even somebody with his very intemperate style can go to NATO and end up solidifying its status as a vaunted international institution. So one dynamic that I've been observing, which is actually really interesting, is that Trump's supporters want to believe that he's a greater change agent than he really is, that he's this bulwark against globalism, that he is, you know, take on the the deep state, um, that he's uh, that he's changing the face of American politics uh, forever, and for that matter, the international uh, system. And then you have his opponents basically making a similar claim, but with a different twist, saying that Trump is such a, an enormous threat that look what he's doing. He's he's causing the these decade-old you know, post-war alliances to crumble. He is by <coughs> imposing some tariffs, um, give, uh, giving a death blow to the international trade system. He is basically just uh, destroying democracy both in America and, and, and the world over. I mean, both these interpretations of Trump are very extreme in, in terms of their rhetoric, but neither have much resemblance to reality. And that's sort of the, the, the kind of blinkered atmosphere that we're operating within. You have both his supporters and their opponents attributing to Trump much more than what Trump actually is, which is somebody who's maybe tinkered with elements of the status quo, but the the way in which he is a big departure from the status quo is almost entirely in terms of his rhetoric. And ultimately, rhetoric doesn't have a whole lot of effect on how politics or the international system is constructed, because you can you can you can you can rattle off all the rhetoric that you want. But if it doesn't translate into action, then the impact that you have is only going to be fleeting. OK, so there's a lot there, obviously. Um, let me see if I can respond to as much as I remember. So. This is not normal. So this is, you know, this is like the the, sta- the standard liberal phrase that uh, gets tweeted out whenever Trump does something, and then it's often mocked by uh, leftists on Twitter uh, who uh, <laughs> think that this is absurd. So some of the things. So okay, so Trump himself is not normal. Like he's not a normal human being. He's a very strange human being. Uh, he's strange as a politician. He's strange as a business executive. Uh, he's strange as a president, you know, the last president who had no previous uh, 
political experience before becoming before ascending to the office was Dwight Eisenhower. He won uh, World War II in Europe, so a, a kind of bigger accomplishment than than building buildings and owning golf courses. And then, like you go back, there's no, there's no previous person who uh, became president who never had military or political. Uh, experience in the past. So he, he so he doesn't really know what the hell he's doing. Like I, I think I think that's kind of clear. Um he's and this is where this is my own like somewhat weird interpretation of him. He's not normal in that he doesn't care about politics. He doesn't, he obviously doesn't care about policy. He cares about politics in the way that a 72-year-old man who watches Fox News every day cares about politics, but he doesn't really care what happens. He, uh, he wants to win. He wants people to pay attention to him. He likes going to rallies. He likes being on TV. He likes talking to his favorite talk show hosts on Fox and Friends and Sean Hannity. Uh, I'm sure he likes the fact that he gets to live in the uh, White House and fly on the big plane. And, you know, everyone pays attention to him. So this is all great. But he doesn't really have political objectives that he cares about in the way that previous <laughs> holders of the office have. Had so you pointed out um, his two nominations to the Supreme Court were basically down the line conservatives from Federalist Society who Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz could have just as easily appointed. Like, whereas you you could imagine if Trump was like the disruptive figure that he seemed like he could have been in 2016, he could have like appointed more of like a maverick figure to the Supreme Court who would have like upheld his unusual like coalitions uh, politics. But he didn't do that. He just Appointing these people, I think, honestly, he probably mainly appointed them because they're both, like, handsome-looking men who look like the kind of person who should be Supreme Court judges. Like, he pl- he, pra- he places a lot of emphasis on being straight out of central casting. And, like, Gorsuch especially is, like, this striking-looking guy, and he's tall and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we can't imagine Trump, like, pouring over legal decisions and thinking, like, who is truly the best jurist. He just, like, they gave him a book. It had four names in it. He met with the people. He picked the one he liked the most, like— that's it. He doesn't. Trump doesn't care about Roe versus Wade. He doesn't care about affirmative action. I think there's there's a few things he does care about. Um, one is he, he doesn't like foreigners, or at least dark skinned foreigners. Um, obviously, he married um, two of his three wives are from Europe, um, but he really doesn't like um, dark skinned foreigners. Um, so he care he cares about immigration for that reason. Uh, he obviously cares about trade, but he. I think his main his main foreign policy idea is someone else is eating our lunch. We're getting screwed. Can you believe it? Um, you know, he, he, people dug up old interviews where he talked about Japan in the same exact way he talks about China today. So he's you know a skeptic of free trade and a skeptic of all like anything happening in another country. Um, but what he but he, what he does like is he likes authoritarian leaders, and he clearly has an affinity for people like Putin and Erdogan. And Lil Kim um, and Duterte, because I, I feel like this is like the he, he wishes he could be in that kind of position where like everyone truly did have to treat him like the number one guy who can do everything everything he wants to do. So other, and everything other than that is can just I, like his etc. Okay, go ahead. I, I mentioned interject there. I mean, I think so. This is another dominant narrative now that you hear every single day. Trump has an affinity for authoritarian leaders, which may well be true. He may have an affinity for those particular leaders that you mentioned. But if you go and look at his comments about, say, Justin Trudeau over uh, over time, about Macron about even Theresa May, about other foreign leaders who visit the White House 
And, you know, so it's not a huge deal if, like, the leader of, Swe- of Sweden comes to the, the, the White House and he has a nice press conference with Trump. Those co- flattering comments that they exchange don't tend to get reported because they don't fit into a preordained narrative. The point is that, you know, you mentioned that Trump is sort of devoid of ideology to an extent that's unusual for a president. I would agree with that. He has a bundle of instincts that he's attempted to channel. And when he doesn't care about an issue, he basically outsources it to the kind of um, administrators who have basically been, have long ties to the Republican Party mm-hmm. who he had to rely on in order to create a government. Because it's not like there was this roster of quote-unquote Trumpists available for him to staff the enormous enterprise, which is the federal government. Um, so the Republicans who you know were – Provisioned by you know years and years of uh, conservative think tanks and 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 legal societies and so forth, um, they 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 filled the void. But if Trump is devoid of ideology, then why would he have any particular attachment to like a Duterte or or or, or, or Putin? I think he's he's drawn to people who flatter him and who say nice things about him. And if a socialist said a nice thing about him, he'd probably you know be willing to go and praise that person as well because he doesn't care all that much he wants himself elevated yeah i, I agree um, so he so if, if a foreign leader comes to the white house obviously they flatter it's flattering to trump he gets to do the handshake with the press there whatever private meeting they have i'm sure the prime minister of norway is saying admiring things about trump and the united states and that makes trump feel good so i, I agree about that uh when there's when, whenever there's some sort of disagreement that's when trump starts like insulting the person personally so it seems like macron originally was like kissing his ass and they, they had this uh you know they brought trump to the bastille day parade or whatever and trump loves that uh because he he loves parades that's, that's like a long-standing thing in his life is that he really loves parades before he was elected president um he said the uh, proudest moment of his life was when he was chosen to be the um, Grand Marshal of the Israeli, uh, yes, the honorary parade. Grand Marshal of the Israeli <laughs> Day Parade, that. which is not even—I never even heard of this. I'm Jewish. I never even heard of Israeli Day before. Something like, total bullshit. This is what this is his proudest life achievement that he got to like lead a parade, and that's essentially what he wants to do. He wants to lead the American parade, and he's having his Pentagon like set up this military parade at some point in the fall. So yeah, he likes yeah, he's the, he likes yeah, being flattered. He likes, he's the pundit in chief more so than the commander in chief. I mean, that's what he did in order to get, he, so when ordinary presidential candidates want to garner enough support where they're viable within a Republican, Republican or Democratic primary, generally what they do is they travel to the early states, you know, New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina. They kind of, uh, kowtow, uh, to the local officials there. They build up a, an infrastructure within those states. They go around and seek endorsements. Trump didn't do any of that. He just was a pundit on national media, namely Fox News and uh, on other kind of, you know, you might be called under media, like, I don't know, World Net Daily and stuff. And and that was his route. So that is what he basically, it seems as though he sought the presidency in order to achieve, being the most amplified pundit in the world. Yeah, he gets the guarantees that he's on TV every day. I mean, one thing, so I've said a lot of things uh uh, denigrating Mr. Trump, one thing he definitely knows a lot about and has an insane, seemingly instinctual feel for is television, reality TV, how to get the media to pay attention to him. So that's uh, a lot more important than I think a lot of us realized, uh, you know, before he launched his presidential campaign that this, the skills of a reality TV star are um, important. But I should also note that reality TV created him in his current state because he was like a middling 
you know, real estate executive. He wasn't even the, one of the most powerful real estate executives in New York City when The Apprentice created this myth of him as like a globe striding business colossus. And that show was on the air for like 10 or 15 years. And without The Apprentice, there's no way he could ever become president. But this is why I think that the narrative that you kind of hinted at, which is that he has this strange affinity with authoritarian leaders and he wants to create a new alliance system that rebukes the traditional American allies such as, I don't know, France and the UK and Canada in favor of this dark, sinister well, I'm not, alliance. I'm not saying Putin. that. That's that's like too – that gives him too much credence for like forward planning. He just likes right, but that's, people but that's, that, who that's are like thuggish. But that's the narrative that's very predominant, right? I mean, no, he he likes people who flatter him and who who want who say nice things to him. He whether likes it's tough, he likes tough guys. There's a quote from him from an interview in the '80s where he's praising the the Chinese crackdown at Tiananmen Square for using force. And he's like, you know, they were very strong. They used force. It was a tough situation, but they did what they had to do. So he he has these like very like you know masculine <laughs> uh, ideals about like. Uh, toughness in leaders and you know you do what you got to do it may not be pretty but you do what you got to do and keep everyone in line so he 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 likes that so he he's he has an authoritarian personality like i wouldn't want to be his child and we can see how his children came out um but he is not like he's not an he's like a wannabe authoritarian but he's like too stupid and the and the american constitutional system prevents him from being like an actual authoritarian yeah you know I, I, I want to kind of pause at this point and observe that we spent like the last eight minutes trying to dissect Trump's inner psyche. And while Trump is the president and that requires some dissection of the psyche, whether we like it or not, I don't think that the public has been well served by this never ending tendency to put Trump on the psychiatrist's you know, chair and try to extrapolate motives based on aspects of his personality that we can glean through the TV or through reporting or through his tweets. I think that mode of interpretation has become so dominant that it's really had a distortive effect, which is why, although, like anybody else, I have to engage in it to some extent, I, I try to be aware of the deleterious effects of doing that constantly and, and push back on that where possible. Because I don't think that, you know, you, you're, we're, it's never going to be especially fruitful to come up with some explanation for Trump's actions that we can connect conclusively to whatever his psychological instincts are. I mean, I remember on the right under the eight years of Obama, this was a constant mode of interpretation as well. We want to be able to trace Obama's actions back to his kind of psychological aversion to America. The, the fact Kenyan that he anti-colonialist is, mindset. Yeah, the Kenyan anti-colonialist mindset, which was D'Souza and Gingrich and all those people who you know got, somehow wrote best-selling books based on expounding that thesis. And they would always use that as kind of an analytical shortcut to – characterize something Obama had done. Oh, he has this burning antipathy for America. It's based on his childhood or based on the fact that he was in Indonesia for a couple years and so on and so forth. And did anybody really find that to be a beneficial use of, of time other than to kind of galvanize people who are already kind of angry at Obama into purchasing products? I don't particularly think so. I mean, again, it's sort of unavoidable to some degree, um, and Trump is such an outsized personality 
that you can't help but try to wonder whether this particular action is attributable to this particular psychological motivation. But again, it's just, it's kind of a, it's a superficial analytical mode. And I wish people would be more aware of that. And if, if anything, it's a confirmation that Trump is actually much more shrewd than we might have thought because everybody spends so much time on this issue of his psyche rather than analyzing the things that he's actually done. Um, and that was, I think, a product of his reality TV uh, uh, tenure. All that was about uh, what will what what will Trump do based on these kind of hints as to his inner motivations that he drops over the course of an hour long show, and you know wants you to stick around for the commercial break in order to find out. So I, I think you're almost giving into that framing when you allow yourself to be mired in this you know ceaseless discussion of Trump's instincts. Um, yeah, well, let, let me reply to that. I mean, you raise a good point about, you know, kind of like the the highbrow version of this is like the Marine Dowd column that's like always psychoanalyzing the president. And, you know, her she wrote 100 columns about George W. Bush's father issues. And that's why he went into Iraq, too, because uh, George H.W. Bush didn't do the job there. And, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's libido and, you know, Obama's like cool demeanor and absent father. So this is like a staple of punditry. It's usually, it's usually like mostly bullshit and overdone. Um, you know, it points to the outsize and kind of gross importance of the presidency in our lives that we're, we have to like deal with this fucking person for four to eight years and have to yeah. care about their family. And we call them the first family and Melania is the first wife. Like she's the first wife like what the fuck is first lady what does that mean it's it's fucking stupid so so like if trump if we if after four or eight years like the office of the presidency is diminished because of donald trump's like grossness and stupidity then that'll probably be a good thing but trump doesn't have an ideology all the previous <laughs> clinton uh george w bush and obama all had ideologies trump does not have an ideology he doesn't care he just cares about these things i mentioned previously being Flattered, being adored, getting on TV. So his his bizarre psychology matters more than it did for any previous occupant of the office who had, like, actual things they wanted to accomplish when Trump doesn't really care. I mean, Trump's big thing in 2016 was building the wall. Where's the wall? The wall has not been built. You think he would have devoted more time to building the wall when that was, like, his signature signature thing. But he seems not to care about it at all. And if you follow people like Blogging Head's co-founder, Mickey Kaus who are very devoted to immigration restrictionism, you'll see that they are not happy with Trump because he has not lived up to his promises and the wall has not been built and the wall is not going to be built and will never be built because Trump doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, I think it's perhaps true that the psychoanalysis stuff is more important with Trump because he's kind of less, has less ideological content than previous presidents. But, you know, thinking back to previous presidents, a number of them ran on the strength of them shunning ideology, or at least that they claim that they shunned ideology. So with Obama, well, Obama was there are no red states and no blue states. We need a practical form of politics which can appeal to Republicans. We need to be above the fray. Even George W. Bush, when he first ran in 2000, was hailed as a Republican governor who could get along with Democrats and was willing to do bipartisan policy solutions. And you know, before 9/11, he actually did some of that, like No Child Left Behind. Bill Clinton shunned 
ideology as a quote new democrat and you know picked picked uh, incorporated pieces of basically kind of classically right wing politics in order to expand his appeal um, and, and, and I think you, you could find examples of that going back throughout history. So that wouldn't be that unusual for a successful politician to at least claim as though that they are above ideology. Maybe even it's a prerequisite to being successful. Um, now, that Trump, you're right, is different in the sense that he had no elected office experience. Um, he had uh, he, he simply ran golf courses and appeared on television, which is a lot makes it a lot more difficult to decipher what his instincts are politically. Um, but I don't know that that justifies the wholly disproportionate focus on his psyche. I guess yes, you may need some of it, um, given how 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 scant his record is was prior to 2016. Um, but the, the, there's just too much. It's too dominant. It has a distortive effect, and it makes people believe, you know, for example, that this is not normal, and that there's no continuity here between Trump's government and previous iterations of American governance, which there very much are. And if you don't recognize that, then you can't actually get to the root causes of what is bringing about the most, you know, repellent excesses of Trump's tenure in office. Um, so I don't believe that, that, it, that the, the, the emphasis is, is warranted, um, notwithstanding the legitimate points that you've raised and I've raised about how his psyche actually kind of is, is, is significant. But you, you talk about his, his bundle of instincts and you kind of went through the litany of issues that he seemed to have some genuine commitment to, whether that be trade, um, immigration and foreign policy. You know, one of the issues that I, discussed over the course of the 2016 campaign was his instinct with regard to foreign policy. And I observed with a handful of others that Trump seemed to evince some non-interventionist instincts that were uh, bundled together with very aggressive instincts. So he would uh, one day call for bombing the shit out of ISIS and on the other day say that America's gotten a raw deal in the Middle East and we need to use that money on infrastructure projects at home. So it was kind of a confluence that last of one contradictory gets, instincts. But that last one gets back to my, they're eating our lunch. Like, we got screwed. Like, Iraq screwed us over. We should have taken the oil and gotten out. So I think that part fits into the, yeah. his whole, like, I mean, they're eating our lunch idea. It does. He's also, you know, made comments about how, you know, how horrible it was that Iraqi civilians got bombed. And again, it's always a mishmash of, uh, of jumbled emotions and instincts with, with him, which is why all you can really do, at least prior, all you can really do, at least prior to his assuming office, was try to discern instincts. And, you know, I got a huge amount of pushback for observing that one of these instincts was non-interventionism. As if that meant that Trump was a, quote, peace candidate or that he wanted to, you know, uh, send roses and, and, and teddy bears to foreign countries instead of bombs. No, that was never the point. The point was that one of his instincts that is in contradiction to others, but is still evident in his psyche, I guess, is this non-interventionism. And uh, obviously, and, and, and you can't say this now, but that, that instinct has actually been manifest more in the, so in the past couple months than maybe at any other point in his presidency. The North Korea summit being one huge example. I mean, it would have been total blasphemy for a president of any party, you know, two years ago to say, I'm going to meet without preconditions with the leader of North Korea. I mean, that would not have even been recognized as a fathomable possibility. I agree. Um, um, and yet Trump did it. He was de denounced for not getting enough in return and not being antagonistic enough toward Kim. 
Um, he she was basically criticized on interventionist grounds or on kind of conventional militaristic grounds for the tact that he took with North Korea. And so for him to have done that, I think probably reflects some genuine instinct that he does have with regard to how foreign policy ought to be conducted. Now, you have to take that in concert with other actions that he's taken, such as increasing bombing in uh, against ISIS in Syria and Iraq, which created has created huge amounts of uh, civilian casualties, uh, carrying forth the Obama-Bush legacy of of drone strikes and special ops, which ha- has uh, a, a huge humanitarian impact, um, you know, continuing to, to abet the Saudi incursion in, into Yemen. So nobody's saying that he is a pure-hearted anti-interventionist. Nobody ever said that. But just as Obama evinced some characteristics that led one to believe that he had interventionist views, um, so does Trump. And one example of that would seem to be this North Korea issue. And even you know, even uh, even his his press conference yes, uh, uh, this week with with Putin, which has caused this another yeah another meltdown. You know, just as a side note, I don't know how many meltdowns that the American public can be subjected to by their media and still kind of remain sane. Mm-hmm. I mean, last week it was the Western security order was collapsing. This week is a Trump where the president is a traitor. I mean, next week it's going to be, I don't know, there's an asteroid heading to Earth that somehow Trump commandeered. It, 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 it's, it's just <laughs> too be a, much. It'll be a blessed relief at this point. Um, it's too much, maybe. <laughs> it's just too much for the average person to process. So I almost feel like they're being fatigued and they're tuning stuff out because the hyperbolic rhetoric is has, has diminishing returns and those returns probably diminished a long time ago to the point where they're no longer have any, have any kind of meaning. Um, but even at this, this press conference, Trump carried forth the longstanding American tradition of at least attempting to achieve some kind of detente with the Russian or Soviet leader, notwithstanding fraught relations and notwithstanding with whatever geopolitical tensions might be um, might be present. And that, I think, is also an indication of some, you know, what you might call a non-interventionist instinct. Now, if, if Trump had gone to, 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 you know, Helsinki, denounced Putin to his face, announced some kind of aggressive posture toward him, and then launched some bombs or, you know, sent more arms to a nation state on Russia's borders or done something that proved how belligerent he was toward Russia, he would have been cheered, but that would have not been consistent with a non-interventionist outlook. And, you know, so I think, you know, when you're talking about instincts, that I feel has been ignored because the mainstream narrative has been inverted to the point where Trump receives the most criticism when he does something which is actually a departure from mainstream establishment norms, at least with regard to, to, to national security. Um, or to foreign policy. So he got a huge amount of criticism for, you know, coddling a dictator with, 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 with Kim in North Korea. And he's getting the same criticism now, um, with respect to, to Putin, even though one of the, one of the reasons that Barack Obama defeated Hillary Clinton in the 2008 Democratic primary was because he said that he'd be willing to meet with foreign leaders, even hostile foreign leaders without preconditions. Hillary said she wouldn't do that. And that was probably, that was a big reason why uh, Hillary lost, arguably, um, because, you know, that in, in addition to her, you know, her, her foreign policy record more broadly. So, I mean, I think I think pe- people kind of pick and choose what instincts they want to emphasize with with Trump, because 
he's just so so much in our daily lives, and we can't like get beyond him. That you know, it, it's very possible to to weave a narrative. Um, uh, we weave a whole variety of narratives using kind of the the bits and pieces of his his psyche that he leaves for us to kind of contemplate. Okay, so once again, there's a lot there. Um, so on the like the outrage cycle and the you know sense that every you know the world is ending uh every day because of something trump did i would encourage people to subscribe to the mindful resistance newsletter which is a project that robert wright is leading i'm working on it as well it's currently in a summer. i am so I, i'm a subscriber <laughs> okay great it's a summer it's on the summer hiatus we'll be coming back uh, in a little bit but yeah the goal of that is to try to uh cut through the outrage bloviation things that are supposed to get your emotions roiling and point out what actually matters and what are the actual uh, mindful ways to resist Trump. So there's the plug on Trump's foreign policy. I mean, uh, at one point in 2016, Glenn Greenwald tweeted that Trump had a non-interventionist mindset. And I've been jokingly retweeting that line whenever Trump does something aggressive in the world. I don't think he has any mindset whatsoever. Um, aside from what I said previously. So he obviously likes Americans more than other countries, and he would never send uh, troops into Iraq to bring freedom and democracy because he doesn't care about people in Iraq at all um, and doesn't particularly care about freedom and democracy either. Uh, in his dealings with other world leaders, I mean, it's true that had uh, Hillary Clinton gone to meet with Kim Jong-un, uh, she probably would have been impeached. Um, and it's hard to see any, uh, any other Republican doing it as well. It seems to be a good thing that, uh, you know, Americans and, uh, North Koreans are talking and North Korea, uh, claims to want to disarm. I don't trust anything that, you know, Trump himself may have, uh, gotten out of Kim because Trump is a moron and Kim is smarter than him. And I'm highly skeptical of the entire affair, but uh, better to you know better to talk than than not to talk. Um, on why don't we talk? Why don't we segue into talking about the Russia stuff because you mentioned the, the press conference. Um, I I mean it's it's so you know this this is not normal. So it's not normal for a Republican politician to go and kiss the ass of Vladimir Putin like. Uh, Ted Cruz would not have done that. So Trump has his own things going on there. What is actually going on is like, you know, the major uh, story and psychodrama of our age, I suppose. Um, and you've you've been like a big critic of the Russia hysteria. Um, and, you know, we there's this information comes out in drips and drabs. There were indictments uh, last week. There was a, a woman who apparently was a Russian gun rights advocate who was arrested for being a Russian agent in Washington, D.C., and she got her photograph taken with, like, a dozen of the ugly old white men who uh, populate the GOP over the past couple of years, and those photos have been popping up online, although apparently she did not access the Oval Office. That was a that photo was tweeted in error. That was just another uh, woman with red hair uh, in the Oval <laughs> Office when the uh, Russian delegation was visiting with Trump. Uh, there's something weird going on here, but I, I have no idea what it is. So there's obviously the idea about the P tape. Um, I, that seems outlandish to me for <laughs> multiple reasons. There's Jonathan Chait's, uh, idea put forth in a recent, uh, New York Magazine piece that possibly Trump has been some kind of Russian mole since 1987 when he visited the Soviet Union trying to start a hotel there 
and when he came back, he started denouncing NATO or something. This also seems pretty far-fetched. But then there's also just a lot of, like, weird shit. Like, why why does Trump seem to care about Putin so much when he clearly doesn't care about other people, like, almost at all? Um, why why was he so solicitous of Putin? <laughs> why wouldn't... I mean, so, so possible... So the most, I think, innocent explanation is that He's very uh, psychologically attached to the idea that he won in 2016 fair and square, and any uh, intimation that Putin, uh, you know, intervened in the election in some way would undermine his great election, you know, his great victory in the electoral college, which is very biased against Republicans. We all know, and he won 305 electoral votes. Blah blah blah. So he can't he can't admit any collusion because it would hurt his fragile little ego. That makes a kind of sense to me because he's such a fucked up person. Then there's the idea that I think is most likely true, which is that over the years, as a semi-crooked and shitty business a real estate executive, uh, his company helped launder money from Russian oligarchs uh, through construction of places like Trump Soho in New York City and his other crappy buildings around the world. So a lot of you know fishy people <laughs> use uh, high-priced American and Canadian real estate to stash their money overseas. Um, would Trump have any objection to this happening if he was building the building? I can't see how he possibly would. So there's some chance that there's some illegal activity here that the, you know, that the Russians know about and they, they are holding over Trump for some reason. Uh, did Russia try to affect the 2016 election? It seems pretty clear to me at this point that they did. Um, was that what mattered? I mean, there were a hundred things that mattered. Uh, it mattered that Hillary Clinton was the worst politician in America. It mattered that she said the word deplorables. It, you know, mattered that she fainted at the 9-11 ceremony. Uh, <laughs> like, there, there's there's just a, s- a series of, like, 100 events, like, any one of which didn't happen. Like, if she had if she had hired a competent campaign team who had told her to focus on the swing states in the upper Midwest, she probably would have won. Uh, so I don't think it's the determinative factor, but it seems to have played some small role along with the other like hundred things that led us to this bizarre set of circumstances. Okay, so <laughs> that's what I'd say about that. Well, this is going to be deeply disappointing to people who stand out on the street corner screaming, this is not normal every day. But unfortunately, it is quite normal for the American president to meet with the Russian or Soviet leader and to say solicitous things of that leader and to be for those two people to be mutually flattering of one another. I can give you many, many examples of Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George H. W. Bush. Go back down the line, even in the most fraught of circumstances when the two countries were on the brink of nuclear annihilation, even when the, the Soviet Union had, uh, you know, invaded Afghanistan or when the U S had shot down, um, an airliner uh, or, or something, even when there was an international crisis. Nevertheless, the two leaders got together and as a matter of just normal statecraft, said nice things about one another. So now Trump has his own mannerisms, as we've all as we've already discussed. He has his own quirky style. You know, quirky is maybe a generous way to put it. But he's, he's carrying forth that tradition with Putin. Okay, and people want to assign the most nefarious possible motivations for why he has done that rather than acknowledge that it's for better or worse how American and Russian slash Soviet leaders just always operate. 
So I don't think that it's anything particularly abnormal. Again, what's abnormal is Trump's personal style. And people have to get beyond their obsession with Trump's personal style if they want a clear-headed view of what the actual political slash international circumstances are. And that's why I, I said earlier that I think that the emphasis on his psyche is producing this kind of warped effect where people can't view things with any semblance of objectivity anymore. It's really, really damaging. Um, so if you look at what Trump actually said with regard to Putin, you know, for one thing, Putin actually criticized Trump. This was not acknowledged very much, but Putin reaffirmed his commitment to the Iran deal in that press conference because Barack Obama made solicitous overtures to Vladimir Putin personally in order so that they could work together on a mutual diplomatic objective, which was to achieve the Iran deal. For some reason, Barack Obama wasn't a, a stooge of Putin when he worked with Putin directly to achieve major diplomatic initiatives. So Putin actually criticized Trump on that ground and restated his commitment to the, uh, to the Iran nuclear deal. I don't haven't heard a whole lot of coverage of that. But if you actually listen to the press conference, which I did, you will find that that's one of the main things that Putin discussed. Um, so, again, it, this is all about the power of narrative. You could easily construct a narrative based on you know that statement from Putin, based on the fact that Trump has taken a whole variety of actions that are very much averse to Putin's interests, such as, like I mentioned before, repeatedly bombing his client state, sending lethal arms to Iran, expelling uh, huge level, huge, huge numbers of American diplomat, uh, uh, diplomats, sorry, of, of Russian diplomats from America, of an appointing virulent anti-Russia hawks to main major positions in his cabinet, such as John Bolton and, and Pompeo. Um, and yet that narrative is not what's constructed. What's constructed is this espionage thriller, which has, which, which, which is like a, a boondoggle for journalists because every single day it provides new snippets of information that seem as though they're a bombshell and that they will alter the course of history. But, you know, within like 24 to 48 hours, tend up getting lost in the haze. And that's been the function of this Russia story from the outset. It, it's so boundless, meaning the boundaries of it are so expansive and so ill-defined that the story just keeps morphing into new areas and it all seems to come back to this original premise that Trump and Russia engaged in this surreptitious plot to, I don't know, destroy the world order. I mean, so it's a really the, – the, the stakes of it seem pretty dire when you put it in that kind of context. And that's why you know journalists and, 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 and Democratic politicians feel as though they're on the cusp of history when they discuss this issue. And that's why they – they imbue like stuff like Russian produced memes and Twitter bots with world historic importance, which I think would have been comical two years ago if you had described it to somebody. But, to, but today passes as just kind of conventional wisdom, which is sort of amazing as to kind of like the basic premise of, of what actually is is at the source of this so-called weird activity? Well, you know, as I said, I don't think a whole lot of the activity is actually weird. I mean, George W. Bush feted Putin at his ranch in Crawford, Texas, um, because they had mutual uh, diplomatic objectives that they wanted to pursue with regard to counterterrorism and stuff like that. You know, I don't think Trump would get away with, you know, bringing Putin to, you know, Mar-a-Lago and going golfing. Um, so he actually has less 
room to be solicitous of Putin than former than, than previous. Okay, presidents. that was like, like in two thousand one, or you know, before uh, <laughs> annexation of Crimea and uh, other uh, possible, you know, uh, other bad well, things done by. Well, President I mean, Putin. I, I yesterday I tweeted out a quote of Obama saying how much he how much, how impressed he was by Putin's contributions to to the Russian people uh, less than a year after the uh, South Ossetia conflict, which was declared by American media in large part as an act of Russian aggression in which, you know, McCain, when he was running against Obama, basically, you know, said should be the impetus for like World War Three. Um, yeah, he said, so, we're all you know, he said we're all Georgians, Georgians now. We're, we're all Georgians now, right. So less than a year after that, Obama was willing to go on the world stage and praise Putin. So, I mean, it's not, again, not uncommon for this to be, the case. And um, so the, the indictments this past week were, you know, after you know, a, a year plus of the Mueller investigation, the first time in which the, the core elements of the Russia collusion thesis were actually um, the first time that the Mueller investigation bore on the core thesis of the Russia collusion uh, story. Um, and because remember, it all originated with the hack of. John Podesta, so-called hack of John Podesta's uh, email account. Um, so we're now in the throes of a international crisis because John Podesta clicked on a suspicious link in his Gmail. Now, I think it's worth kind of reiterating in those terms because you have Democrats calling this an attack on America, likening it to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, saying that it is evidence of Trump's treasonous activity, and it really amounts to one day in March of 2016, John Podesta logged on to his email account and clicked on a suspicious link. I think people need to be aware of that um, and how kind of comical that sounds when you kind of step back. Uh, but but nonetheless, the indictment did bear on that incident, meaning Trump, uh, Podesta getting spearfished and the Democratic National Committee getting their emails exfiltrated as well. Um and I think, you know, it's an indictment. It, 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 it's, it's plausible, uh, but it's not proven. And until it's proven, I don't think it is prudent to operate under the assumption that what was outlined in that indictment is objective fact. Um, that said, let's say it is objective fact. I keep going back to this point because I think it's, it gets lost with the attack on America rhetoric. What were the fruits of that so-called Russian interference? Well, John Podesta and the DNC had their emails hacked. Okay, fine. What happened as a result of that? Well, the Democratic National Committee's executive board had to resign in disgrace because emails came out showing that they were plotting anti-Semitic smears against Bernie Sanders. It also demonstrated that the DNC was basically merging operations with the Hillary Clinton campaign well before Hillary Clinton had secured the nomination in direct contravention of their public assurances that they would be a steadfastly neutral body. So they didn't just tilt the scales in a figurative sense. They literally merged operations with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, it, it revealed that they were planning on giving concessions to the Bernie Sanders supporters that were basically bogus. Uh, because they wanted Bernie Sanders supporters to, to back Hillary Clinton. It revealed – now on the Podesta emails – what did those reveal? Well, 
Remember when Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders had a, had a debate in the Democratic primary when and, and Bernie Sanders challenged Hillary Clinton to release the transcripts of her speeches to, to 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 Wall Street? And she said that she would, quote, look into it. And I guess after months and months of looking into it, she still didn't come up with a solution. But when uh, John Podesta's Gmail account was leaked, lo and behold, those speech transcripts did come out. And they revealed, you know, as expected, that Hillary went before these banks and flattered them and, you know, advanced all her hawkish foreign policy proposals. Um, those emails also revealed that there was malfeasance within the Clinton Foundation, that the Clinton Foundation's own employees had uh, basically raised. Um, it revealed that the State Department and the Clinton Foundation had merged uh, operations in terms of personnel in direct contravention of what – the Clintons had said was would be the case. It revealed that Bill Clinton had taken unsolicited donations to the Clinton Foundation from foreign uh, tyrannical regimes, even, not, despite an agreement that Hillary had reached with the Obama administration that they wouldn't take such donations. It revealed that Donna Brazile tried to give debate questions to Hillary Clinton uh, to so that she could have an upper hand against Bernie Sanders. Um the list goes on and on and on in terms of the genuinely revelatory information that came out as a result of those so-called hacks that the American public deserved to know. And so, you know, let's just stipulate that it was the Russian GRU responsible for that. You know, it may sound bizarre to put it this way, but the Russian GRU kind of did a public service. You know, maybe. Okay, you so you agree with you agree with Trump about that. It's that. Well, I don't. I, I don't care what Trump says. I'm saying that if you look at the products of that hack, there's a reason why every major media institution in the country covered voluminously the those emails. It wasn't because they thought that they were going to be abetting a foreign espionage plot. It was because those emails revealed information that it was in the public interest to uh, to, to report on. So I think this retrospective characterization of it as an Strictly an attack on America is not just hyperbolic, it's a distortion of what that incident actually was. It was emails being released from the most powerful political figures in the United States. And the reason why people were so upset about it was because it seemed asymmetrical. There were no you know, concomitant attacks on, on Trump or the Republicans and their emails weren't released. Well, okay. If those email, if they had been attacked, I, I would have been in favor of their emails coming out too. Um, but the fact that it was asymmetrical doesn't diminish the significance of what those emails contained. And I think people are just ignoring that basic reality because they're so whipped up into this fear about attack on America and Pearl Harbor and 9/11 and the international order collapsing, and they you know can't remember something as recently as a year and a half ago um, when you know all again all the major media institutions reported on the contents of those emails. I don't tend to think that it's a particularly good strategy to declare all major American media institutions as the unwitting agents of a, of a foreign espionage plot because what they were doing was reporting on newsworthy information about the country's most powerful political officials, and I'm going to keep repeating that whether people like it or not, because that is the reality of what transpired in 2016. Okay, well, here's a, a different perspective on that um I call yeah so were the media unwitting dupes well what the information is public is on a public uh, website like they're going to report on it like that's that's obvious um the the uh, throw your mind back to 2016 2015 there were two email stories there were hillary clinton's emails on her private server in her basement and then there were the hacked emails 
These okay. got conflated in the public mind. So Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton private server reinforces everything bad that people think about Hillary, Hillary Clinton. She thinks she's above the law. She does whatever she wants. She doesn't follow the rules. She's kind of shady. She always slips out of things. Okay. Then the emails, then the, then the hacked emails came out. You listed all the nefarious deeds of the shitty Democratic Party that came out. It seems like it would mainly piss off Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, what they revealed. They distribute, you know, they leak them day by day or something. Or like every other day there was a new batch of emails. Like that was smart way to do it. Emails were in the news constantly throughout like summer and fall 2016. We're always hearing about emails. What's the latest revelation from the emails? So some of them are kind of bad. Some of them are like, well, I don't know. I mean, kind of shitty. You know, like Donna Brazil gave one question to Hillary. Like, does that really help anything if you actually think about it? Like, one question out of 17 debates? Like, no. But it sounds bad. Like, it sounds like like the Democrats are corrupt. But it was. But most people don't pay attention to the news. <laughs> but most people are not, like, digging through uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, John Podesta's emails. And we should know for a second that uh, one real-world effect of John Podesta's emails being leaked was the creation of the Pizzagate uh, conspiracy theory, which has uh, metamorphosed <laughs> into the QAnon conspiracy theory, which I actually recorded a conversation with Will Summer uh, from the Daily Beast about just yesterday, which will appear, this may be already appeared on blogging yes, by the time you see this, um, or will soon. So, yeah, so that's just the side note of how crazy our country is. Um yeah, so it was all it was emails. And what did e- emails meant? Hillary Clinton, slippery, crooked, uh, can't trust her. That 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 was the reinforcement. So it it was it was about the narrative. I know you've you've been disputing uh, narratives that get created by the press and by politicians and saying you know they they mask underlying reality. Well, is Hillary Clinton actually crooked or not? I mean, she's kind of crooked. Like she, she t- her and Bill Clinton have done a number of slippery things throughout the years. Um, Bill more than Hillary, but uh, there was some shady shit that they they did, um, and that wasn't good. Uh, are we comparing crooked Hillary to crooked Donald? Like, I, there's a lot more shady shit that Donald Trump has pulled over his years as a uh, real estate magnate in in New York City, I'm sure, than um, whatever Hillary Clinton did uh, with the, like the Clinton Foundation or something. But it was the conflation of emails equals Hillary is uh, a crook that really, and and the drumbeat of these emails being re- released constantly, uh, regardless of of what was contained in them, because people don't care about that. That like, I think was a, ter- a determining factor in the election. I think it's probably correct. And I remember observing this at the time that there was a public conflation of the various email related so-called scandals um, that had to do with the Clintons. But I think the reason why there was that public perception was because of Hillary Clinton's own conduct, meaning in direct violation of her own department's standards that you know, she was later denounced for by the Inspector General of the State Department. She set up a private server uh, on which information that was marked classified traversed, and then she proceeded to lie about it constantly and obfuscate the fact that um, she was under criminal investigation as, as early as July of 2015. Her media, her, her supporters in the media and the Democratic Party lied to the public repeatedly and denied that that criminal investigation was going on when we later found out that not only was there a criminal investigation, that it was launched specifically to ascertain whether her conduct personally violated federal criminal statutes. So a lot of that perception 
that you mentioned that I think is accurate stems from her own conduct. It wasn't because there was a nefarious foreign intervention. Although, yes, when you have lots of stuff about emails coming out and people don't have the time or interest to kind of get to the bottom of every single aspect of what those emails supposedly signify, then, yeah, there's going to be a conflation. But there's always a conflation in the public mind when you when you have a presidential contest. So I, I attribute – I assign blame for that problem to the candidate herself rather than to this idea that Hillary Clinton was wronged and the American public should have been more aware of how, you know, generous and, 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 and public spirited she was. Um, so that, that, that I, I, I don't, I don't think that that's a necessarily a problem if it reinforced longstanding American beliefs about the, as you just said, the crookedness of Bill and Hillary Clinton. I mean, that was their own doing and the Democrats could have nominated a different candidate. Um, I also do think that, um, you know, <laughs> one thing that's ironic to me, I guess, just taking a, a step back, is that I do think that there's a lot of corruption involving Donald Trump, both before and during his, his presidency, that would be worth focusing on. Now, the I think the, the emolument stuff is maybe a little bit of a harebrained constitutional theory, although it's gaining traction in, in court, but whether or not it's a constitutional violation – the fact that he has these unwieldy business interests all over the United States and the world and that those could be used to potentially influence policy is a very legitimate issue involving public corruption. And so I can imagine an alternate universe where rather, instead of Russia, uh, instead of an email hacks um, and instead of you know weird internet memes, the fact of his having these business interests all over the U.S., where people can, you know, pay money to his hotels or pay money for golf club memberships and thereby exert influence on the president, I can imagine an alternate universe where that was the focal point of a narrative about Trump's mm -hmm. abnormality, which actually is fairly abnormal. Um, rather than and would be worth, I would stand up and chant, "This is not normal" on the on the sidewalk if that was the was the predominant narrative. But it's not because it's not as sexy as the. You know, Trump and Putin collaborated in 1987 or something. Uh, who, who knows anymore? Um, what the what the uh, what the, the theory is supposedly is. Anyway, you know, usually when when, pol when politicians get exposed for the corruption, my instinct is just to blame the politician himself rather than the entity which made available information revealing that corruption. Okay, yeah, I I agree with you that it, it would make more sense to go after the Trump administrations and Trump himself's corruption and, um, you know, um, uh, Scott Pruitt's uh, crazy, <laughs> like blatant uh, corruption and trying to use his office to benefit himself uh, that finally forced him to resign, like after a year's worth of corrupt stories. And yeah, the, you know, I, I believe that I read that Mar-a-Lago doubled its initiation fee from $250,000 to $500,000 after Trump was elected. So that's a nice uh, – Yeah, and this, and this go back – and during the presidential campaign, I remember saying something similar. I remember, I remember saying, why don't you – Hillary – not that I wanted to actually give advice to the Hillary Clinton campaign, but I was saying if I were advising them officially, if I were making a killing on advising them and getting way too much more money than I deserve, um, as most operatives do, um, I would be advising them, forget about the Putin stooge stuff. Talk about Trump's personal – corruption in the sense that he over the course of his career built small business owners. I remember there was like a, a maker, like a piano maker or something that he screwed over in New Jersey in the in like in the eighties or so. Like, you know, there are just a tons of stories like that that you could elevate 
and which would actually, you know, cast out some of the mystique of him as this kind of brilliant business mind, which had been implanted in the public consciousness because of his reality TV show. But my advice, you know, my my theoretical advice was never taken, but it still stands now. I think this you can still find instances in which he's probably, you know, him or his associates or his acolytes are violating the public trust by engaging in what may or may not be emoluments, but whatever you kind of define them as are pretty obvious and egregious instances of public corruption. But for whatever reason, that's not doesn't sell as well as this international espionage plot, which is why I get back to the fundamental belief, which has driven my skepticism on this issue in large part, which is that none of this I'm saying because I feel like Trump should be immune from scrutiny. Rather, it's the total opposite. It's that I feel like the never-ending saturation of coverage of this issue is actually an impediment to a rational, thoughtful, targeted opposition, which can actually provide a meaningful counterweight to Trump's worst excesses. So you have stuff like Trump being given surveillance powers by Adam Schiff, who's the you know basically the leader of the of the Russia Gate crusade, and um, nobody really pays it any mind because they don't really care if Trump has these long has these surveillance powers because again it's just a long standing condition uh, continuation of American state power. Um, but I think it's stuff like that which tells me that this delusion that Trump is this. At, Incredible abnormality and is, is not, is not, is, is, is a uh, departure from an American continuity. That's where I think the analysis really falters. Um, so I, I've always said that the opposition to Trump is going to flail if it's not targeted and rational and responsive to new facts and, you know, grounded in a, you know, a clear headed interpretation of what the state of play in American politics is. And I don't see that for the most part. Um, and, and that's why, you know, my perspective has been what it's been. Um, okay. I have maybe just one more question. We've gone over an hour. Um, yep. So this, this entails me trying a slight audio visual thing here. So I'm holding my phone up to the camera. Can you see what that says? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it says, I do not give a fuck about Russia. Okay, so this is a this is a little meme. I don't know how there must be some app that lets people create these. It looks like things from Trapper Creepers in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, it says I do not give a fuck about Russia. Um, uh, the uh, bro pair who is on Twitter, whose real name is Dan O'Sullivan, who's kind of a um, left uh, Twitter personality, journalist, joke maker guy, tweeted that yesterday, and I thought it was <laughs> it was pretty striking. Um, so I follow a lot of left people on Twitter. And noticed pretty consistently, maybe up until very recently, that if you were on the left, you were not buying the whole Russia thing. Um, and it seemed to me, so my like diagnosis of this was that the left, which is kind of res- having at least a small resurgence right now, um, through Bernie Sanders and through the D- Democratic Socialists of America, um, saw 2016 as like the final, um, you know, the the American people dismissed and turned against like neoliberal, you know, a democratic neoliberalism uh, as represented in its apotheosis, Hillary Clinton, and only um, the only and in turn elected like a quasi fascist or whatever, however you want to call him, like a very bad guy, Donald Trump. Um, the only thing that can truly counter uh, counter Trumpism is a revived 
leftism because liberalism, Hillary Clinton discredited like American mainstream liberalism. Um, and then when the Russia st- like, and this is summed up in the phrase, Bernie would have won, um, which I agree with that <laughs> Bernie would have won. And I voted for Bernie in the, in the primary. Um, so the Russia story emerges and this provides this alternate reason that Hillary Clinton and, you know, Democratic, the Democratic version of neoliberalism lost. It was the nefarious foreigner who undermined, <laughs> undermined our sacred values and, and did it to us. So they, so they've been rejecting the Russia story all along. And I place you on the, more on the left than the liberals. Um, do you credit this at all? Am I, or is this a misreading? No, I think it's a fair reading. I think that, again, there's this deep desire to want to believe that Trump was a fraudulent imposition on America rather than a manifest manifestation of a genuine impulse in American society that's been there from probably the beginning. And so they want to content themselves with this explanation which draws on a nefarious foreign subversion plot. And again, like I mentioned earlier, it's a similar situation with Brexit. And I think it can be understood as basically the anxieties and paranoia of the liberal class um, coming to the fore. And they are increasingly uh, disoriented and um, untethered from reality in a lot of ways because their station in society is being progressively diminished. They don't, they aren't seen as the, having the authority that they once did. And again, this is a, a general statement because we're talking about a large swath of the country in terms of their, their kind of class status. You know, I'm talking about people in the think tank realm in the elite media realm and maybe elements of academia, all of whom were virulently opposed to Trump. Remember, Trump didn't receive a single newspaper endorsement in 2016 other than like some obscure town paper in Nebraska and the National Enquirer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's a pretty remarkable thing uh, even now. And those people, I think, have been flailing now for for a year and a half. Um, and they latch on to whatever explanation seems like the most coherent. And like it or not, I don't think I don't think the tr- Trump Russia story is particularly coherent because, as I said earlier, it's totally unwieldy and it's boundless and it keeps expanding and impinging on different areas. But the narrative distillation of it is fairly coherent, and it's easy for people to understand. If, if they only kind of pick up bits and pieces of it on a day to day level. And I think that's basically the, the, the motivation. But on, on the other hand, I want to, um, to be charitable to the liberals. I can imagine them responding to you and saying, yeah, you know, maybe there's a lot that we have to self reflect about in terms of why Hillary lost and maybe she was an avatar of a failed, you know, liberal status quo and yada, yada, yada. But look at just the facts. The facts show that Trump probably more than likely colluded with Russia. The facts show that Putin nefariously intervened in the American election because he wants to destroy the world order. And the facts show that Trump has all these weird you know, ties. And look at the indictments that Mueller has handed down. That's a talking point. You can't call the, this a witch hunt because look at how many people Mueller has indicted. Well, Mueller is Jordan W. Bush's former FBI director, and you can basically, who can basically indict anybody. So I don't necessarily that look at that as the word of God, but – I mean, you can if you want to. Well, I mean, some, some people that's, have that's, pled guilty the, already. 
yeah, they they pled guilty but for like procedural stuff such as lying to the FBI, which any, anybody can get caught up in. You know, if they're not, you know, if they don't lawyer up immediately, which these guys are pro- too haughty to have done. And you know, as a side note, I think it's not the worst thing that somebody like Manafort, who two years ago was orchestrating the Republican National Convention, is now sitting in jail. It shows that they actually. Equal, equal justice under the law is sometimes applied. It's rarely applied, but sometimes can be applied even to powerful figures. So but anyway, a liberal would say, no, it's not this psychological motivation that you're trying to glean about us excusing liberals. It's because we're, we're rational people and we're looking at the facts. Well, I, I think that what leads to the impression that there's something, quote, there, there is just the huge volume of facts that constantly barrage people every single day, which – Maybe are only kind of dubiously connected to one another, but again, because the contours of the Russia story are so broad, you can get just a flood of information about it every single day. And that leads people to believe, you know, somewhat reasonably, they extrapolate from that that there's some fundamental, you know, maliciousness or malice at the heart of this that is yet to be uncovered. Um, and that does uh, corroborate the. The, the kind of underlying Trump Russia theory that kind of set this off in the first place. And I don't think that's totally un- irrational for somebody who's not an avid news consumer to to, to con- conclude. But I, as somebody who has am like you know for better or worse an avid news consumer, um, I tend to find that when you actually drill down on any one tidbit of information, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny as evidence of what people want to claim it as evidence of. So that's why I, I've been kind of there – there, I think you're right that there are some people on the left who have been just kind of temperamentally skeptical of the Russia story because they think that it's just excuse-making. They don't particularly care about Russia. They want the Democratic Party to focus on other issues like bread and butter stuff, whether it be Medicare for all or um, you know minimum wage, that kind of thing. So that's one sentiment on the left. But another, I think – is a smaller cohort of people who actually are immersed in the day-to-day emerging fact pattern of the Russia story and want to emphasize that you know whatever the psychological motivations of the Democrats and liberals who are trying to elevate the story, they're also misreading the facts and they're making conclu- – they're drawing conclusions that are unwarranted. And there's not a whole lot of interest in doing that because – Meaning scrutinizing, scrutinizing each individual fact because it can be very easily construed as pro-Trump or you're trying to excuse Trump or you're or you want Trump to be uh, to evade accountability, and which is not the case. But I think there is a genuine need for that kind of in the weeds assessment of each individual fact because if you're somebody on the left who just says eh, the Russian story doesn't interest me that much, but I'm not, and I don't think it's a it's a Politically wise strategy for the Democrats, so I'm not going to, um, you know, uh, to, 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 I'm not going to get involved in kind of like the micro stories that come out every day. I think there's a need for people, at least a certain faction of people, to do that because otherwise it creates the impression that, you know, given just the, the massive volume of stories, that there has to be there has to be a vindication of the narrative that's been propounded by the most kind of vocal. And extreme um, interpreters of, of what Russia supposedly, Trump Russia supposedly signifies. So that's sort of like where I've tried to, you know, what, what I've tried to, to, to do on some level. Um, and you know, I guess I will 
be continuing to do that because there's no end in sight, um, unfortunately. So steal yourselves. The, 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 the mantra I've been repeating to myself ever since shortly after was Trump, election, Trump was elected, it was that things will always get worse. You might think that they're really bad now, but they will only get worse. So just prepare. Yeah, uh, that reminds me of uh, uh, a tweet from another uh, leftist funny person, uh, Matt Chrisman, uh, Kushbaum from Chapel Trap House. Uh, he tweeted on Inauguration Day, uh, this is the stupidest day in America, and every subsequent day will be stupider, um, right. which seems, seems to be true. So I guess uh, the final point I make is like, uh, if you believe there's something to the Russia story, you're kind of like believing in a conspiracy theory. Um, you know, there's like all these nefarious actors and there's all these ten- tentacles of it and this uh, attractive redheaded woman who was living in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years. John- I mean, look at Jonathan Chait. So Jonathan Chait wrote that cover. It was a cover story for New York Magazine. So it's the kind of story that people sitting in dentist office <laughs> and, and like auto repair shops are going to be – maybe not auto repair shops, but you know, you know what I mean – are going to be sitting in waiting rooms read, scan, reading – and what the main visual aid in that story, which I tweeted out, is this like crazy, just crazy. Just, I don't even know what you call it—a mental map. It's like a—it's like a diagram a, of all the possible links of every every possible character. Yeah, that looked it, insane. It's just—it's just, it's just incomprehensible. All all the little squiggly lines that are drawn. It's kind of a more urbane version of something that Jen, Glenn Beck would have done in two thousand nine. Um, so, you know, so that that that's. That's what the mainstream opinion is increasingly becoming. If it can get on the cover of New York Magazine and, and that can be the visual aid, then people don't perceive what they're postulating to be a conspiracy theory. And this is also an interesting dynamic. Yeah. A conspiracy theory is only deemed as such when it percolates from the fringes of society. So obviously, you know, 9-11 was an inside job, was a conspiracy theory. Trump, I mean, uh, Obama was born and Kenya was a conspiracy theory. And those were only called conspiracy theories because the people who were at the forefront of, you know, proclaiming those tended to be on the fringes of society, although Trump, and then, and then Trump was perceived as on the fringe, but over time he kind of he migrated, obviously, to the more, more mainstream. But because the Trump-Russia foundational conspiracy theory, I mean, think of what Chait says in that article. I mean, he doesn't authoritatively claim it, but he says, you know, it's pretty good likelihood that this started in 1987 so that's when the that's when the conspiracy began over 30 years ago mm-hmm. but it's not deemed a conspiracy theory because it originates in the center when it originates in mainstream precincts when it originates in places that aren't seem extreme then it's not a conspiracy theory i think back to saddam colluding with al-qaeda that was not a conspiracy theory because it started with Jeffrey Goldberg and the New Yorker and Dick Cheney. Mm-hmm. But it was a conspiracy theory. Um, yep. and it would have been, it would, but because people who ha- ha- people expounded it who had societal prestige, it never got denounced as such. And that's a similar situation now. I mean, the, the crux of what people are alleging with regards to Trump-Russia is a conspiracy theory. Now, sometimes conspiracy theories are true and you can furnish evidence to support them. But until that point, they are pretty much classic conspiracy theories, and and and, and because the the political media class lacks self awareness, after they were utterly and wholly repudiated by the American public, um, they 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 don't see themselves as as again furthering conspiratorial sentiments, even though that's essentially what they're doing, and that can have a really damaging impact on the national psyche over time. Um, it can make people kind of desperate for these little dopamine hits of 
news and information which seems to validate their conspiratorial preconceptions. And I don't think that's a fruitful you know, mode of, 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 of doing politics. Yeah, so I, well, what I, what I, I'm somewhat repeating myself in this conversation with Will Summer, but what I said there, and I'll say again here, is you know, there's a like psychological benefit that is given to you when you believe in a conspiracy theory, and that's that someone is in control. Um, you know, the 9-11 conspiracy theory people, it somehow made more sense to think that George W. Bush and the government um, killed 3,000 people as opposed to, like, these 19 uh, foreigners with uh, box cutters managed to kill 3,000 people. Like, it's like, yeah, someone, someone's in charge, and maybe they're not exactly looking after us, but at least, like, someone's there, and they know they, someone knows what they're doing. Uh, whereas in reality, ran, uh, uh, human life is random, often absurd, uh, doesn't make a ton of sense a lot of the time, um, witness the election of Donald Trump, and it's it somehow, I'm sure, I'm sure there's people who take psychological solace in the idea that Putin put placed Donald Trump in the presidency instead of like 500 weird little things happened that snowballed and led to Trump being placed in, in, in the presidency, which is... More likely, at the same time, a lot of stuff has come out. There's been in, there's been indictments. This is this is not the same as believing that uh, the UFOs landed in Roswell. Um, and I think we just have to stay tuned. As you mentioned, some conspiracies are real. We had this guy who wrote a book called Conspiracy on blogging. He has an interview with Bob Wright. His name is escaping me right now, but he um, was writing about the Peter Thiel um, takedown of Gawker. And the way he describes this was like, yeah, this is a real conspiracy. Like, they conspired for years. They worked behind the scenes. There were people spread – like, the idea came from some guy who was living in Europe who went to an intermediary who co- connected him with Teal. And uh, Teal was, you know, the, the the player who was providing a small amount of funding, but he wasn't the main player for most of it. Um, so it can, it can occasionally happen. And, um, you know, governments also do – uh, very uh, destructive things when they when they want to. So I I I'm agnostic about what's uh, what's going to come out in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say I mean, agnostic is the right word, but I'm willing for evidence to be provided which can substantiate the grandiose claims that people have made about this issue for now two years. I'm skeptical that there is going to be evidence to to substantiate the, those claims, and I think that. The fact that those claims have been made have served a political function that doesn't even necessarily require evidence to be furnished at this point. People are already set in their beliefs. Um, I don't think, ironically, that the widespread belief in the American liberal media, you know, so not what right wingers describe as the New York, as the liberal media, but like legitimate liberal, liberal media like Mother Jones and stuff. I don't think that they're I don't, I don't think, for example, the transformation of Mother Jones into the leading exponent of a, an, a Manchurian candidate plot um, is necessarily good for, you know, liberal people who have a commitment to liberal political objectives. And I, because I don't think it's actually going to diminish Trump's political standing in a meaningful way, meaning it's not going to actually reduce his power. Um, it's it's in a way that I think other forms of targeted opposition might. Um, so that's, you know, I am I agnostic. I don't know because I have a little bit of contempt, frankly, for how this whole narrative has worked uh, itself into the public mind. 
Um, and, but at the same time, I have to be open to evidence as somebody who is, you know, at least I like to think of myself as a rational individual. And if you're a rational individual, then you have to assess evidence as it comes. Um, but again, I don't think indictments are itself are themselves incontrovertible evidence. They have to be proven in court. Um, and, uh, it's very unlikely. It's, it seems that the Russian intelligence operatives that Mueller indicted are ever going to appear in American court. So maybe right. that kind of, it, uh, maybe that kind of goes to the fact that those indictments were more a political statement and a means of justifying Mueller's role and why he was appointed in the first place, more so than an actual document issued with the expectation that it's going to initiate a real criminal process. Um, so, at the same time, so, so while there is more specific information now as to at least what the government alleges took place with regard to the kind of origin story of the Russian Trump, uh, Russian Trump uh, collusion kind of theory, which is that, you know, the, the hack of the emails, um, I don't think we can go so far as to treat it as though it's, you know, infallible, uh, the, the infallible word of God, which is, I think, uh, how a lot of people in the media have kind of portrayed it. Mm -hmm. Okay, why don't we – we've gone uh, an hour and a half, so why don't we end it there? Um, So, Michael, you said you are between positions right now, so probably people can most easily follow you on Twitter. Yeah, that's generally – you know, unfortunately, that's probably the best way to keep keep in contact. Uh, Okay, so what's – your Twitter will be linked below, but for people who are listening to the podcast, what's your Twitter? uh, It's mtracy, M-T-R-A-C-E-Y. Okay, and I'm A R Y E H C W um, on Twitter. Uh, so your, the, your 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 puns are spectacular, by the way. I can't get enough. <laughs> yeah, there's a, I I alternate between um, I guess it's maybe 25% sincere political posting and 75% just stupid joke posting. So if that's what you're looking for, um, shit posting is I think the technical term. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Well, th- thank you, Michael, for uh, taking the time to come on, uh, and thanks to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Sure. Enjoyed it. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.